The following is a Journeywise Network production. I don't know if you are listening to this by audio, you can't see it, but if you're watching the video of it, you know that I love to eat. Food is a very important part of my life, and I love great food with great seasons. Well, one of my dearest friends is Robert St. John, who is a a restaurateur and an author uh, and just an amazing chef. And not only has he learned how to navigate through the world of food, but he's also learned how to give back in the world of food in very specific and special ways. Here's our conversation today on You Matter with author, restaurant owner, and chef Robert St. John. Take a listen. Hey friends, we want to welcome you uh, to our latest episode of the You Matter podcast. And today is a a guy that I've uh, respected for many years and have watched his journey, his career, and uh, so thankful for um, uh, so many memories and and stories that I have of him. And so it's great to have with us a chef and restaurateur and uh, author and travel uh, uh, god, uh, Robert St. John. Robert, it's great to have you with us, buddy. Hey, man. How's it going, Shane? Good to talk to you. It's going good. Thank you. And for, for people who maybe don't know all that you do and who you are, would you just give us sort of a brief uh, synopsis of the Robert St. John story, the journey? Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you the Reader's Digest version of that. Uh, I'm, I was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi in 1961. Uh, my dad died when I was six. Uh, my mom was a public school art teacher. She raised my brother and me up on an art teacher's salary, which um, meant I had to work. So I started working uh, early. I was in radio as a disc jockey for a long time, and I got into the to the restaurant business when I was uh, 19 and have been in that ever since. Uh, It was one of those things. I fell in love with it instantly and uh, opened my first restaurant in 1987. And uh, since then, I've I've written, uh, I guess, 12 books and uh, done a TV show and produced some documentaries and uh, host uh, tours uh, in Europe, I'm talking to you, speaking to you now from uh, the Tuscan countryside, which uh, it's a white background, I know, but uh, the <laughs> internet's spotty over here, so I'm inside against this white wall. But that's that's, that's, uh, that's kind of it. Uh, I've been married for 30 years. Uh, we have two kids, 25 and 21, a daughter and a son, and um, that's pretty much it. Uh, I've got I don't know, like seven restaurants, I think, and a bar. Wow, you have you have been busy. I think the when you and I first met, um, and of course I had known of Crescent City, the restaurant that's my favorite, still my favorite restaurant. We were in Hattiesburg just uh, last week, and uh, we went and ate over there, so we love it. Uh, but um, uh, I remember the first time I met you, something happened, and uh, I don't know if you remember this story, but something got sent back to the kitchen. And it was from the guy sitting behind me, but you thought it was me. And you came out and knelt down and you had your white uh, coat on and uh, you were kind of walking me through. And and I, you were this close to giving me free lunch. And the guy behind me went, no, it's me. And, the, and you went, oh, I'm so sorry. And you moved on. And I thought, well, that's a nice guy. And I almost got free lunch. But uh, then we met again um, when I did a workshop at Main Street United Methodist Church in Hattiesburg. Yeah. And we that's began- right began talking and and here was 
this guy that's, uh, you know, very well known in the Hattiesburg area. But you at the time were really, I think, thinking through a lot of, and you always have come to find out, thinking through a lot of aspects about your faith. And church has always meant a great deal to you, and your faith has meant a great deal to you. Um, you have uh, had one of those journeys that I think people think, oh my gosh, everything has been perfect. So it's always oh. gone just really well. And uh, and that's not the case. You've had your your moments of ups and downs like anybody. Uh, getting in the restaurant business uh, was uh, an adventure to say the least, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things I, um, you know, I think everybody is meant, I think you do. You're so good at what you do. I think you're doing exactly what you were meant to do. And um, I, I think I, uh, restaurant business was like that for me. Uh, once I got into it, it just, I connected like, I feel like it was the first shift of the first day. It was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to open up a restaurant. And um, and so, yeah, it's. I think it's what I was uh, wired to do. It's. I love it. That's where my what? passion lies. And, you know, you and I both believe success follows passion. Absolutely. What uh, What is it about that particular business that you think draws you to it so much? What is it about the interactions or the, or um, the work? I am uh, I am severely. Our, our good friend, Ronnie Kent, would would diagnose me as severely ADHD. They didn't have a name for it when I was a kid, but I would have been the poster child for for that stuff. And so, you know, I'm I'm like off thinking about this and that. I got about 20 things going on at once. And the restaurant business uh kind of caters is, and that's probably has something to do with why I connected right off the bat the first shift. You know, there it was a lot going on and it was peaks and valleys and and I just loved it. It had to do with food, which I love food, always had. And um, it just, it it connected. I loved it so much. Um, <clears throat> I managed a delicatessen during the day, and then I got a job waiting tables at night, and I just couldn't get enough of it. So what led you to start your own restaurant, and what was that experience like? Um, working you know, in the business to being the business. That, uh, well, so I... I I flunked out of college, which is why I got in the restaurant business. There were two ladies opening up a delicatessen who had no idea about the restaurant business, which is evident because they hired me as the manager of the <laughs> restaurant. And it was that that's when I fell in love with it. And I started working at night and I was like, you know, I'm going to, this is what I want to do. Um, I want to open a restaurant one day. I mean, and that was my goal from that point on. Um, the problem was that I was pretty, um, pretty heavily into alcoholism and drug addiction at that time in my life. And it took a couple of years. I got clean and sober, uh, in, um, May 25th of 1983, I was 21 years old, been clean and sober since then. Um, and that's when I really were, was able to put my life on the fast track and went back to school and got a degree in hospitality management and opened that first restaurant, which was the purple parrot fine dining restaurant. Um, uh, December of 1987 and wow. been open, opening up restaurants ever since then. I, I love it. Well, and so you said you have seven restaurants now you have a, quite an assortment and it does sort of speak to the attention deficit because you have different types of restaurants. Can you kind of give us a rundown of all the yeah. restaurants? Yeah. So purple pair uh, was open 33 years. It was a COVID casualty. We've reconcepted, reconcepted that into a Tex-Mex restaurant, uh, but Crescent City Grill that you spoke of, 
Uh, it's been open uh, 30 some odd years. Uh, it's a New Orleans themed restaurant. We have Tabella, which is an Italian themed restaurant. Ed's Burger Joint, obvious. Um, we have a place called the Midtowner, which is breakfast and lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mahogany Bar, which is uh, a neighborhood uh, watering hole. Um, and then we have a new restaurant in Jackson called Enzo, which is an Italian restaurant, actually named after the guy who owns this villa I'm in right now over in Tuscany. His name is Enzo Corti. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, uh, is there any particular style that you like? What is your taste in terms of your own personal uh, food taste? You know, I wrote about this this week and early on, man, it was just fine dining, fine dining. That's that's all I wanted to do. And the older I've gotten, the more, my personality is a lot more casual than that. And so I've really kind of morphed into uh, more of the casual realm. Uh, you know, I'm, it's all about for me these days, it's all about accessibility and community and, uh, you know, everybody that wants to eat out, I, I want to be able to feed them in one of my places. Uh, the Midtowner is the perfect example of that. It's the breakfast and lunch place. It's located uh, right across from the University of Southern Mississippi. And it was my goal that I wanted to make the most Hattiesburg restaurant ever in Hattiesburg. I wanted it to be a community cafe where everyone could eat because that's all we used to have. We used to have really fine dining French restaurants to go back to the 1940s. You'd have a really fine dining French restaurant. And then the rest of it were just cafes and diners and places like that where, where everybody met. And then I wanted to do, and nobody's doing that anymore. And I wanted to do that to where young, old, black, white, rich, poor, uh, the girl with uh, Greek letters on her sweatshirt and the guy with his name on his work shirt I wanted everybody in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the, proudest moments I've had in the restaurant business was a couple of weeks in, I was working the window and I turned around, looked in the dining room and that's who was there. It was the entire community, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, everybody was in there. And uh, that's kind of what I'm into these days. Well, tell me, as you're starting a restaurant like the Midtowner, which probably now has become my new favorite, just because I love breakfast so much. And I've been there many times. Um, when you go to start a restaurant, what is the kind of the quick, the process that you work through in your brain in terms of what you're going to serve and what it's going to look like? How do you work through that now? Well, for a place like the Midtowner, we do breakfast and we do kind of meat and three lunch, heritage cuisine, what our grandmothers made uh, after church, you know, on Sunday. And so that pretty much dictates what the menu is going to be there. I mean, you got to have pancakes and waffles and you know, fried eggs and and biscuits and all the stuff. Um, and lunch, you know, it's fried chicken and meatloaf and chicken pie pie and those kind of things. And and so that dictates uh, what we do now. The management style, you know, I, I opened that first restaurant, whatever it was, been thirty five years ago, I guess thirty thirty six maybe. We hired four managers, and I, I haven't hired a manager since. And we wow. we just promote from within. And so um, sometimes people go and they have ownership. Uh, wow. Jared Patterson is a, started with me as a waiter when he was in college 15 years ago. He owns 50% of Enzo now. Wow, uh, Stacy or my partners at Tabella, all the managers. We have a, a very, um, it's an, it wasn't planned this way, but majority of our management team are, are uh, hardworking women. And I was raised by a hardworking woman, single mom, and uh, 
I have, I have the ultimate respect. Yeah, I always believe women are a lot tougher than we are. Oh, that is absolutely true. I can testify to that myself. You um, and I both can. Strong, very strong women. Uh, I have a, a mom very much like your mom. I just talked to yesterday by Zoom, and she was still uh, giving me a list of things that I needed to take care of this week. And so that's just the kind of way it rolls. You know, I understand you've been, that. You've been the lone guy for a long time up in that family. Just and just about every direction I walk, yes. Hey friends, there is a wonderful podcast that's part of our JourneyWise podcast network that I have listened to every episode and I love it. And it's called Choosing Cheer. And the host is Nicolette Bell, who is our chief operating officer and one of our teachers. Nicolette, tell us about Choosing Cheer. Yeah, so I grew up as a cheerleader. And so um, I had learned this verse in John as a little girl uh, where Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, it's a promise, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And I learned that verse as a, as a young girl on how to have a positive attitude. Sure. And so cheerleading was more to me than a sport growing up. It was a mindset that I had. And as I grew older and began to dig in the scriptures, um, I began to realize the connection uh, that had to Jesus. And so we do a lot of talking about the joy of Jesus, finding the joy of Jesus in life's most difficult moments and then in life's everyday moments as well. Well, anyone who knows you knows that you live this philosophy, this motto so well, and it does. It brings me a lot of joy to listen. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, I'll admit that, but the ones I do, I become very faithful, and this is one of my favorites. <laughs> Take a listen, Choosing Cheer with host Nicolette Bell. I know community matters to you, Robert. I know that it's important to you. And several years ago, you actually started an organization that's gotten a lot of um, review and a lot of support lately. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, uh, how you are reaching out to those who maybe are less fortunate. Yeah, I, um, 2009, I got a telephone call from Edward Street Fellowship Center, a place you know well, uh, run by a collection of Methodist churches around the Hattiesburg area. At the time, they were feeding about 800 families a month, um, and they had completely run out of food, no food. And they called and, and said, is there anything you can do to help us? They were panicking. Two days, they had all their clients coming in to, to feed. Uh, and I said, sure. And I figured the best way to help would be to just call my food service distributor, put together an order, and have it drop shipped to the uh, to the agency. And I did. And uh, they were able to feed their clients. And I started thinking at that time, you know, I bet if there were an easier way uh, to supply these kind of places, uh, maybe they wouldn't run out of food. But to be honest with you, I was, I was skeptical there was even a hunger problem in Mississippi. I mean, I was thinking, I hate to kind of tell them myself, but it was like, you know, this is America. I mean, we sure. don't have hunger. I get some third world Central American country may have hunger issues, but not here. And so yeah. I went on kind of a fact-finding mission across the state, and it, it didn't take long before I, I yeah. probably got to Jackson, and I learned <laughs> there's a huge problem. Yes. And uh, my eyes were opened. And uh, Mississippi has 2.9, fairly small state, 2.9 million people. Out of that 2.9, 20%, like 670,000 Mississippians wow. are food insecure. Yes. Um, over over 120,000 seniors, uh, over 250,000 kids who eat yes. a school breakfast, a school lunch, and then don't eat again until the next day. And so I was like, I got to do something about this. And so I formed an organization. It's called Extra Table, based on the premise of 
what if every table and every business and every home uh, had an extra table where they could feed those in need? And uh, and so we started, and that was 2009. And I will tell you, in 2020, we shipped 2.9 million tons of food to over 61 agencies across Mississippi. It started with that one and to be honest with you, about five years ago, our board, um, of whom you know several of, um, our goal was to be in every county in Mississippi. Mississippi has 82 counties. There's a lot of counties. And I yeah. was like, yeah, we're going to do that. But be honest with you, I'm telling myself again, on the inside, I was going like, there's no way we're going to. And we're in like, I don't know, 70 some odd now. So it's, it's pretty close. I, I found an extra table on two principles. Number one. 100% of the money we raise for food goes to purchase food. I wasn't going to be a part of anything where all this, you know, extra administrative costs go to the top and all that. Yeah. 100% of the money we raise for food goes to food. So I started a separate 501c3 that just raises money for the admin, minimal admin costs. I mean, we sure. uh, during that 2020 year, it was one employee that, that did all of that feeding. Uh, wow. It's not me, I've never taken a dime, but... Um, the other thing is uh, we found a founding principle is that it's always going to be healthy food. Because sure. Mississippi's number one in food insecurity. We're also number one in obesity, which yeah. I had a problem with that. I was like, well, somebody's eating something somewhere. You yeah. know? And then I learned the more I dug in is that um, those uh, people uh, are living out of um, people that are food insecure are basically living out of convenience stores. Absolutely. Cheapest sugar drinks and snack foods and living yeah. off of that. Well, it, it, interestingly enough, over the last 10 years here in Memphis, um, uh, we uh, had a situation where literally in the center of the Memphis metro area was one of the most um, um, significant food deserts that you could, and a lot of it had to do with uh, crime and insecurity and some other things going on, but work to try to get a, uh, a grocery store to come in and then working to have the supporting agencies around it. And it's not easy. Uh, I think yeah. people uh, like you and me, I felt the same way when I first got into the issue that I think people think that in the United States, because we you know spend, what, $50 billion on diet products in the United States every year, that uh, obviously there can't be a problem in the United States. But I, I think exactly what you just pointed out, uh, for someone who's looking to try to um, know more about this, is there what would you suggest to them to be able to learn more about food insecurity and food deserts? Um, yeah, first of all, I would uh, go to extratable.org and learn. Uh, it's a it's a great system. We just use business principles for a nonprofit, and uh, we it's a it's a very easy process. We call on food pantries like Edward Street, like that first one, we, we we approach them. It's kind of funny at first because they're skeptical. We're going, hey, we're extra table. We want to send you food. And they're like, well, you know, how much is it going to cost us? It's not going to cost you anything. We're going to raise money. We're going to use that money to buy food below wholesale. We're going to deliver it to you free. And they're mm -hmm. well, do you want our mailing list? No, we don't want to mail it. We just want to send you food. We're going to raise money, send you food. And they're still skeptical until we get them the first shipment and then it's like oh this is great and they love us so and then we keep going we do it once a month because the problem with feeding agencies there are two big problems that people don't understand most of them are operated off canned food drives which are the most ineffective way yes. to supply a food pantry i mean unfortunately it's an opportunity for people to 
just clean out their pantry. And that's one thing I learned when I was on that fact finding mission is I'd see stuff like blueberry pie filling and stuff. And some kid that's getting out of school is not going to go have breakfast till the next day. Doesn't need blueberry pie filling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and um, and the other thing is, is, um, you know, they they're run off senior citizen labor a lot of times and volunteer labor. Yes. And so, you know, we delivered directly to the agency. Nobody has to pack beans and rice and all this. We do it all for them. In your studies uh, in the last year, do you know how many families are being fed through extra table? I wish I had that statistic. It's it's it, it would it would be uh, pretty staggering. Uh, yeah, how effective we are, and I'm not taking credit for that because it's all the people who donate and all the people who volunteer and all of that. But it's it's hundreds of thousands. Sure, sure. Well, I I, I know I'll, you are the type of person, as I've gotten to know you over the years, that when you hear a need or see a need, you respond, and you're trying to, you know, you try to respond in very practical ways. Um, where did your faith, when did your faith become an important part of who you are? You know, I, I grew up in, like we said earlier, Main Street United Methodist Church, and we were there when the doors were open. I mean, it, I was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. We skated in the fellowship hall on Saturday. You know, I was I was there. And so that was the foundation um, for my uh, faith. And, and then my grandmother... Uh, on my dad's side was the kind of the living example for me that I know I'm probably supposed to be a, what would Jesus do kind of guy, but, but more times than not, I'm what would my grandmother do? She was that, <laughs> she was Jesus a saintly okay woman. That too. <laughs> she was a saintly woman. And, and, and she, uh, she's the, she's the person I still try to emulate in so many ways. And so, you know, that was my faith. Uh, early on. And then, um, you know, through recovery, I really uh, started gaining a personal relationship uh, with with God more so than I than I did. Nothing against the church at all. Sure. um, You know, it was it's through recovery and seeing what God did in my life um, I'm at, at, at 21, I had resigned myself that I wasn't going to live to be 30 and I was okay with that. But mm-hmm. the truth is the way I was going, I probably wouldn't have made 25. Sure. <clears throat> and the fact that, uh, I, I was able to make it through, you know, serious alcoholism and drug addiction, uh, with, with an angel on my shoulders, no other explanation. Mm. So that's, that's, that's really, you know, when, when my whole faith journey started. Well, and and you've been, you know, a true practitioner of that. I know it has meant so much to you. You write a lot about it. You talk yeah. about, you know, about your journey. Um, have there been people that have come into your life or ways that you've seen God has used you through your journey to maybe impact the journey of someone else? You know, um, a lot through recovery. And I hate to keep going back to that, but it's... It's one of the you know foundations of me today, and for a lot, I was always open about it. You know, I go to a twelve-step program, and you're not supposed to talk about that specifically. But um, you know, it's all anonymous, this and that. But I've never been. I've, I've protected other people's anonymity. I've never been anonymous on my own because I'm I'm open about it. But something happened 
I was uh, I was on the board of this uh, collegiate uh, campus. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on collegiate. It's a recovery program on on ca- college campuses. Mm-hmm. And I was on the board at Southern Miss, and I was talking about me being in recovery and all that. And a man came up to me afterwards. You know this guy, and whose son had died from an overdose, mm-hmm. and he said, "I wish." My son would have known you were in recovery. He may, he may still be alive. And it was kind of a heavy thing to drop on somebody. You know, I don't, I don't feel responsible for that, but it got me thinking, you know what? I probably need to be more open and about that one time I was a drug addict alcoholic and, um, you know, I was uh, saved from that life uh, by, you know, recovery program and a, a spiritual relationship with God. And, um, and so I've, I've been more vocal about it ever since then. I'm not sure if I answered your question, but. No, you did because I, I mean, I think there's, there's courage in the journey. And then for those of us who've been called to sort of tell everything about our story, um, you know, that's not always easy. That's a different part of the journey. And, you know, I've had people who've said, you know, my gosh, my children call it the the Stanford gene of oversharing. Uh, but, um, uh, and I understand that because, um, you know, my story since, you know, I went to be ordained was laid out in front of everybody for everyone to understand and see, and even some of the bad parts, certainly, but well, there I, is, I tell your story a lot, uh, when I speak about faith, uh, to different groups, I, I use you as a, as really the primary example all the time on, on how you have dealt with all that you've dealt with over the years. So. Well, you're very kind and thank you. And I I think recently, you know, uh, since Ronnie and I've been, uh, Ronnie Kent, who's working with us, we've been working on this new thing called anxiety algorithm. Um, And I've talked about the panic attacks that started after heart surgery that I told no one about until a year and a half ago. And every time I would get up to preach, I would have these panic attacks and they would be just terrible, you know, and and, and really it, it causes you to make decisions in your your journey, your life, your relationship with other people, because you're just trying to survive. And out here, everybody thinks they know. And of course, when somebody's sharing their story, they think they know who you are, you know, at the same time that uh, you build this sense of responsibility and accountability because you don't want to let anybody down. That's where all this was going. Um, what, What makes you get up in the morning and just want to do the best you can for wherever God plants you? Well, number one, um, I love what I do. Um, I truly, um, it really occurred to me one time, seven or eight years ago, I was with my son, Harrison, and we were driving down the road. And he said, Dad, what do you think I ought to do for a living when I grow up? And I I, I thought for a second, I said, son, you know, I don't know. You're going to figure that out. Whatever it is, don't follow the money. Don't chase money. Find it. Find out what you. And then I said this, and as I as I as the words were coming out of my mouth, it hit me for the first time. I said, "Son, ever since I've owned that business, I don't know how many years it had been at that time, twenty or thirty. I said I have never once, not once, gotten up in the morning and gone, oh, gotta go to work. I ne- I'd never thought about that, but but I never have. It's not because it's always been easy because it's a restaurant business is brutal, but it's just that I love doing what I do. I, I love restaurants and, re- and the restaurant business. It's, you know, I'm, 
I don't hunt. I don't fish. I don't play golf. You know, I, I'm restaurants are my hobby. And so I'm, you know, I'm blessed that, you know, I do my hobby for a living. So I told him, you know, whatever it is, that's what you, you need to find that for you. Hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I, I guess that's the best answer with, with, with work, but I try to separate as much as I'm passionate and love the restaurant business. I try to separate work and family hmm. and, and it wasn't until my daughter was born, she was my first 25 years ago, that I was probably a pretty materialistic, worldly kind of worldly items and thinking kind of guy. And it was around the time she was born, which is around the time you and I got to know each other, mm -hmm. um, that I started, it, it's not the, the material things and the monetary things that started to matter. It's the spiritual things and the relational things. Sure. And, and that's not a natural thing for, I wasn't born that, you know, we had no money growing up. And so, you know, I went through a period in my life when I first started making money, I was so materialistic and, and, and it was all about money and things and stuff. And so I'm that not naturally this way, but uh, you know, I think that's, a, that's a spiritual thing too. It's all this, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's, it's not all the stuff and the, and the things and the, you know, the cars and say it's, it's lives impacted and experiences shared. Mm. And, uh, it's the relational things and the spiritual things that really matter. And when I, when I came to realize that, uh, through, through kids and, and, you know, I stopped working nights in the, in the restaurant business, you got to work nights. Sure. Our kids were born. I stopped working nights and and tried to prioritize. I got a lot of job titles, but the most important job title I've ever had is dad. And you know, sure. I, I agree with that's you. it. I agree with you I, totally. A couple more questions uh, sure. in the time we have left. Uh, we do have someone that we both work with that's been very important to our life, and that's Anthony Thaxton. Yeah. Uh, Anthony is our is our media director for our servant school channel that we're developing and be launching, but. You guys had an amazing last year. Uh, in <laughs> fact, I remember where I was in Georgetown when I was watching the Emmy Awards on uh, tell on my on my phone when y'all won an Emmy for the uh, Walter Anderson documentary. What got you and Anthony into the? And you're making another one about Eudora Welty. Yeah. So what got you into the documentary business? You know, Anthony and I have worked together for 20 years. I I think I'm the one that introduced you to Anthony. I was on his show. At First Baptist, I said, you got to meet this preacher. You are the one. This yes, you are. awesome. And so, you know, we've worked together ever since since those days. And uh, he, Anthony is truly the most, probably the most talented guy I know. I, I mean, agree. he's a musician. He's a director. He's an editor. He's a singer. He's an artist. Uh, he's funny. He's clever. He's witty. I mean, he's, he's really, he's, he's got, he's got it all. He's yeah. sharp and he's a, he's a devout guy as well. And, um, we worked on this television show called Palette to Palette, did five seasons on PBS, uh, filmed another season in Spain. And, uh, while we were doing, uh, one of these Mississippi tours and filming that, uh, we got the idea to do a documentary on Walter Anderson mm -hmm. and it's the documentary and the book. Or ninety five percent, Anthony. I I, I I I share a name on there and, and a little advice and and stuff here. I mean, it's really 
Paul yeah. Anthony, uh, who who um, who is who has done that, and now you know, like you said, we're doing the Eudora Welty uh, thing, and we've started this uh, center uh, uh, for Southern Storytelling Institute at uh, Mississippi College for Southern yeah. Storytelling. It's going to be excellent. We're going to run you know a lot of these kind of documentaries through the. It was my goal from the start as the producer of that Walter Anderson documentary that I wanted people from. Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine, to know who Walter Anderson was. Sure. And we, I mean, we succeeded way beyond what I thought we'd do. We had over a thousand airings all across the country, That's all sure. top 100 markets, all prime time. I mean, it was 360 public broadcasting stations, I think. So, you know, we that just fueled the fire for us to want to do more uh, telling uh, stories uh, about these people in their lives that uh, the rest of the country needs to know. Well, and Eudora, Eudora Welty, who's one of my favorite authors, is next. Um, you know, Robert, um, I have one more question. I want to say this, though. You, you've had profound effect on my life in many different ways, um, but in some smaller ways that maybe you didn't know. Um, I walked into your office one time, and there was a picture of Ernest Hemingway, the, the white-bearded Ernest Hemingway on the wall. You got me to reading Hemingway again. You know, I had never really done a lot of listening to the blues. You got me into listening to the blues. And I, of course, I've spent the last 12 years in Memphis. And, you know, so there's not a day that goes by that there's not some impact that you have uh, have had somewhere along my journey. And I want to thank you for that. That's well, been likewise. And, and you've had the same impact on me. Well, you're kind. Thank you. Um, last question. I ask it of all the guests. Um, you know, the name of the program is You Matter. Where do you think? God has you mattering most right now? Um, you know, I'll tell you the things. Uh, being a father, mm -hmm. again, is the most important job. And, that, and that's where my number one focus is, uh, trying to be a good husband and then trying to be a, a good employer. I, I employ 400 people and who, you know, they feed their families based on decisions I make. And so sure. it's a lot of responsibility. So, you know, I'm I'm not any longer trying to take over the world in the restaurant business. I, you know, there's a little area that that I want to have influence in and influence on, and I'm blessed to have creative control in in every whether it's books or TV or restaurants and all that. And um, and so I just man, well, I I am overly blessed uh, walking around every day when I wake up. It's just more than I deserve, and. Uh, um, I don't know if I answered your question again, but uh, I, I think you answered it great. Robert, thank you so much for being with us today. Good to see you, buddy. All right, man. Hey, folks, uh, take a moment, if you would, to please hit that subscribe button. And we also need you to do a five star rating. And then, of course, we would love a review. Uh, we are a ministry of JourneyWise Network, and we would love to hear back from you. So go to journeywise.network and send us a message that we can share. God bless you.